The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Amen. Church, this morning we're going to be reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3-7. through 7. Will you follow along with me as we read the holy, inerrant, sufficient, and authoritative word of God? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us all in our afflictions so that we might be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken. For we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. You may be seated. Would you pray with me? Father God, you are truly glorious. We've not gathered today to worship a buddy or a pal or an equal. but the ferociously holy God of the universe. Father, we stand in awe of you. Just the glimpses of what we have seen, Father, are truly tremendous. And our hope this morning is that we would see a bit more as we continue to work methodically and slowly through your word. The goal is simple, to know you as you are, Not as the world tries to portray you to us, not as our hearts try to deceive us into making you into our own image, but as you are. For we know that the way that you are is higher and greater and more beautiful than anything our minds could ever conjure up. But Father, we know that this is much more than a mental exercise for what we've gathered today to do is not just to see you that our heads might be filled with knowledge, But we gather with the trust that when we see you as you are, we are changed. Not only are we changed, but we are blessed because you are what we have been created for. 
So, Father, we pray that by the working of your spirit and the power of your word, you would reveal yourself to us this morning. We would see you. We would know you. We would worship you as you are. Father, we love you. We trust you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I ask you to return to your feed one more time as we continue reading through this first chapter of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Chapter 1, verse 3, down through 14. As David said, this is the inerrant, infallible, sufficient, authoritative word of God, and we must receive it as such. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. All God's people said, Amen, you may be seated. Father God, would you make this book live to me? In it, would you show me yourself? Would you show me myself? Would you show me my Savior? Would you make this book live to me? For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this morning as we conclude now our sixth month in Paul's wonderful letter to the church in Ephesus, I'm going to direct your attention one more time to the seventh verse in this first chapter. But that's about 35 minutes from now. There are some things that I believe that we need to address, some ways in which I believe that we need to prepare our hearts if we're going to rightly receive what God has revealed to us here. And it's then as we see this, this one last thing that I believe God would have for us to behold in verse 7 that we will then be ready to move on to verse 8, God willing, next week. So as you'll recall, the Apostle Paul, he has shifted his focus here as we moved from verse 6 to verse 7, away from the working of God the Father in planning, and predestining and preordaining our salvation. He has now shifted our eyes to the work of God the Son and accomplishing that which the Father has planned. Now you'll recall the question that I've repeatedly asked you is this, how has your redemption actually been accomplished? What did the Son of God actually come to do? What actually happened at the cross of Christ? Now I pray that you have not missed the significance of this question. This is at least at part and part well, I believe that God would have us to circle back one more time for the third week to look at this seventh verse. Because so many men who call themselves Christian, they have absolutely no idea how to answer those questions. I certainly didn't. For most of my life, I had some vague idea. I knew that the cross was central to this Christian religion. I knew that in the cross, I saw pictures of my own salvation. 
And I promise you that I could recite the Roman road or the faith outline with the best of them. But if you were to ask me, if you were to come to me and ask, how has your redemption actually been accomplished? Or even beyond this, what does it actually mean to be redeemed? I could not give you any real, coherent, solid, biblical answer. And therefore, I could not offer you or myself any real, enduring, and lasting hope. I didn't have any real strong basis for assurance. I didn't have any solid footing where I could come alongside you, steady your heart in times of need, and remind you, excuse me, and remind you that he is there and he is for you. So it occurred to me as I was writing those words this week that I've now made that statement probably six straight weeks in a row, something like that. Over and over again, I've made that statement. It occurred to me that I may not have accurately expressed to you what I mean by that. What do I mean whenever I warn you that Weak theology can lead to a lack of assurance. What do I mean when I tell you that a lack of theology, that that a weakness in our theology can lead to a lack of hope? I don't say this because I place some undue premium on knowledge. There are plenty of men who have very weak theology, very shallow and immature theology, and yet they faithfully follow Jesus Christ today. They will close their eyes in this life and open them in the next to to enjoy the unending blessings of God for all eternity just as there are plenty of men with rock solid orthodox biblically based theology who know nothing of the living God who are completely and utterly separated from them and will wake up one day in hell forever beloved you are not saved based on the strength of your theology but I do however ask you to draw your attention to the 15th verse I'm going to skip ahead a little bit this morning again I'm trying to prepare your hearts for what I seek to show you in a very quick picture at the end of this sermon I need you to know that I wrestled long and hard with whether we move ahead in this. Now, if we had been moving at a normal man's pace, we would have blown right by verse 15 by now. But as we move methodically through this, I had to question my heart. Would God have me jump ahead? I don't want to preach that sermon before he leads us to the verse. There's plenty of meat left on the bone even after what I show you this morning. And as I told you, this little detour that we're going to take, it's going to use up the majority of our time this morning. But then God impressed it upon my heart how badly you need to hear this if you're gonna have any chance of reconciling in your heart and in your life what God is saying to you in this word and what lies beyond this as we continue to work out how has God happened how has God accomplished our salvation we need to have this right firstly because I know how much chatter so many of you are hearing about what's going on at First Baptist Church of Crosby and how many voices there are out there I know how heavy this preaching can be. I know how heavy and demanding our teaching can be. And I know how tempting it can be to just pull the cord and bail. But way more than this, infinitely more than this, I look out throughout this faith family and I see how many people are hurting. I look at the faces in this room. My heart's drawn to the 50 women that are away at women's retreat right now. I think more than that, about those that are not here this morning because they are home or in the hospital dealing with real, heavy, terrifying circumstances. I know how badly some of you are hurting. You're hurting for yourselves. You're hurting for your brothers and for your sisters. So I know that you come into a place like this and your heart is reeling. You're just desperate for some hope. Or even somebody can give you the promise of hope. Just tell me that that there will be hope someday. Just give me something that I can hold on to. 
some glimmer that I won't always feel the way that I feel today. Because some things that I thought were rock solid yesterday, they're feeling real shaky right now. And I'm not sure how much further I can go on. I'm not sure that I can get up and take one more step. So it's helpful for us to remember as we wrestle through these deep and difficult doctrinal issues. It's, it's important for us to remember that the Apostle Paul, he faced these very same issues, as did the churches that he ministered to. How often do you find the Apostle Paul pleading with the churches to keep going? Don't stop. Press on. Don't turn back. Don't get so distracted and so discouraged that you wander away. Don't allow the pain and the suffering of this moment right here to cause you to let go of that precious truth which was once entrusted to you. In fact, more than not pulling away, more than not wandering away, more than not giving up the faith, press deeper. Lean into God trusting that he is enough, that he is more than enough, that he will meet you here with exactly what you need. Beloved, I tell you that the Apostle Paul, he didn't write these words to us in some uh, sterile academic setting. He was in prison. This is a man who would literally lay down his life. He would count it joy to lay down his life for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If there's ever been a man who knew the sorrowing, the sorrow that comes in this life, if he had ever been a man that knew, apart from Christ Jesus, a man that knew what it looks like to endure to the end in the middle of real pain while holding on to hope, while fighting for the faith, while trusting that in Christ Jesus we can find joy today. Not just the promise of some future joy. That right now where your heart tells you to give up because you can't go on. That when every voice in this world is chattering at you, is, is, is barking at you, is tempting you, is taunting you to turn away because that path is too hard. That way is too narrow. That teaching is too heavy. This man knows what it's like to cling to that, trusting that there is real joy and real hope and that it is only found in this way. He knows. Again, I say perhaps better than anyone other than Christ Jesus our Lord, Paul knows that by the grace of God, you can have real gain. You can have real joy, even and especially in the middle of tremendous pain. Tremendous loss and suffering. Yes, you cry today. You mourn, you weep, you yell if that's what's necessary. But even in that morning, there is hope. Dear children, don't you see that in Christ Jesus, God has said that I will use this pain to draw you deeper into joy-filled communion with me. You will know me in ways you would have never otherwise known. You will experience my love and my mercy and my comfort in ways you would never otherwise known. Does it suck? Yes. But am I there working for your good? Yes. And it is there. When you embrace that, when you see that difficult truth, it is there that you can know what the Apostle Paul means when he speaks of himself as being sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. As you taste the sweetness of suffering with Christ. So knowing all of that, I ask you to jump ahead to verse 15. And I want you to listen to the way the Apostle Paul prays for this church. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints. It is critical. It is fundamental and it is critical for you to understand that the Apostle Paul is not speaking to unbelievers here. He's speaking to the church. 
These are the saints who are faithful in Christ Jesus. These are those who already have eternal life. Paul will later say that in Christ Jesus, they are seated even now in the heavenly places. This isn't evangelism. This is the kind of prayer that I should be offering for you and you should be offering for me. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation. Paul is asking for something specific here. Specifically, he is asking that God would give us the spirit of wisdom and of revelation. Again, these are believers. Paul isn't asking for the Holy Spirit to come upon them for the first time. In fact, he says explicitly in verse 13 that they have already been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So rather, what the Apostle Paul is asking for here is for God to do something specific in the lives of these men by the working of his Holy Spirit. Or perhaps... This word could be translated as spirit with a lowercase s, as in Paul is speaking about our spirit. He may be asking God to cause our spirit to be a spirit of wisdom and of revelation. But whichever interpretation is correct, I don't think that it fundamentally changes what Paul's saying here. In fact, if you look at the parallel verse, it's Colossians 1.9, he says, We have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So the Apostle Paul seems to be saying, he seems to be praying that by his spirit, God would work in us so that we might have a spirit of wisdom and revelation, that our spirit might be shaped and formed and informed by the Holy Spirit. So specifically, he says, he is praying that God would give us a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, who is him here. We've just said right above this, that is the knowledge of the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. That's what Paul wants. That's his ultimate hope for the saints in Ephesus. Therefore, the ultimate hope for us sitting here in this room is that we would know God. In fact, you remember Jesus Christ on the night when he was betrayed. In that high priestly prayer, John 17, 3, he says that this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is eternal life. And now the Apostle Paul is praying on behalf of those who have eternal life. On behalf of those who have come to know God. He's praying that we would know him more. Now we know that this isn't just some head knowledge. This isn't superficial, intellectual type stuff. This isn't just the retention of information. We know that the demons know God like this. Nor is this some intellectual assent. Just some, some momentary, I will utter some words, I will recite back to you some Bible trivia type of thing. Romans 1.12 says that the, excuse me, one twenty one says that the world knows God, but they do not honor God. They do not give thanks to God. They belittle God's glory by exchanging it for lesser things. They exchange the truth of God for a lie, and therefore, they don't know him. The knowledge that Paul is speaking about here, the knowledge that Christ Jesus prays for us is an intimate connection to him. This is the kind of knowledge that takes that which you know in your head and it permeates your life and your soul, makes you into a new creation. It changes your desires. It forms your affections. causes you to walk in a completely different way. So the Apostle Paul is here praying that we would grow in that kind of knowledge. That for those of us who have come to know Christ Jesus, that we don't settle here at the surface level, but that we press deeper. That there would be more. That we would learn more. That we would see more. That we would know more of God. That's what he's praying for here. 
that we'd be ever-increasing, that we would grow, that we would be filled with the knowledge of God. Now, church, you know, perhaps more than any, any other congregation around, you know that this is glimpses of heaven. That truly, this is eternal life. Billions upon billions of years, and one day after another day after another day, always more of God to know. Always more of God to be revealed. Always more of God to be enjoyed. Always more joy and satisfaction and pleasures to be found with a greater revelation of God as we increase and grow in this knowledge. And the Apostle Paul's hope for us is that we would experience this now, not waiting till eternity, but that even now in this place, we would grow in the knowledge of God. Therefore, if it's Paul's prayer for us, truly it should be my prayer for you as well. This is a prayer that Jesus offered before laying down his life on the cross. This is Paul, Paul's prayer for the saints who are in Ephesus, men and women who suffered just like us, who have all kinds of noise around them, calling them to abandon the path just like us. And truly that must be our aim too, each and every week. So we gather together as one body, working hard, engaging our minds, being stretched and pushed and challenged because we're always seeking more. We want more of this one who satisfies. That by the power of his spirit, by the working of his word, we are desperate to increase in the knowledge of God. We're desperate for just one more glimpse. This is why we move so methodically. This is why we move so slowly. We could spend the rest of our lives unpacking Ephesians 1 and never exhaust all of God that is there. Never run to the end of his glories. That's what we gather in this place to do. To see him to meet with him, to know more of him, to grow in this kind of intimate, life-changing knowledge of God. But how does that happen? How does one man come into a place like this? They sit under the same teaching, the reading of the same word, they sing the same songs, have the same prayer offered over them, and they walk away thoroughly unimpressed. Their head may be swollen with knowledge, but they know nothing of the living God. How then can a man come to truly know this God in this life-saving way? How can a man truly come to know God in a way that produces enduring hope and rock-solid assurance in his life? He says in verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. When he talks about your heart here, this is more than just emotions and feelings. The heart is the core. It's the seed of the soul's will and emotions. It's who you are in your innermost being. It's your heart the driver of your decisions. And what Paul is saying here is that hearts have eyes. Now, what are eyes for? What do eyes do? Eyes tell us what's going on. Eyes receive and relay information to us. They guide our decisions and they, they shape our desires. How do you know that trouble is ahead? Your eyes see it and they tell you. How do you know that something is beautiful and that you desire it? Your eyes see it and they tell you. So the Apostle Paul's desire here, he is praying that this thing which informs our hearts, this thing which informs our desires, this thing which shapes our wills, this thing which tells us which way to go, his hope is that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened, that we would not remain in the dark, that we would see things as they really are. That's what happens when the light comes on. We see what really is. Things that were once scary, they're no longer a threat. Things that were once enticing, they're now repulsive. When the light comes on, we see what is really there. We see things as they really are. And so that's Paul's prayer. 
He's saying, God, for some of them, would you turn on the lights? Would you turn up the lights? Don't allow them to remain in the dark. Like that blind man that Christ touched twice to heal. You remember that story? As Christ Jesus came along and he touched a man once and he said, what do you see? And he said, well, I see men walking like trees. This wasn't that Jesus' power was somehow limited in that moment. It wasn't that he missed the mark. It wasn't that he overshot. The purpose in this was the reminder that we need the continual touch of Christ Jesus if we're to see clearly. So that we who know Christ, we who have heaven, we who have received eternal life, we come into this place and we're saying, Christ Jesus, would you touch us one more time? Would you enlighten the eyes of our heart to see you as you are? And the Apostle Paul, he is praying here, God, don't let them settle for blurry vision. Don't let them be content with what their minds tell them might be out there. Don't allow them to rest in what they wish were true. Cause them to see things as they really are. Cause them to see you as you really are. Do you know what babies do when they're scared? What do kids do when they watch a scary movie? They cover their eyes and they refuse to look. They don't want to see what's out there. What happens when we see God and we don't like what we see? What happens when we see God and it's big and it's scary? Do you cover your eyes and refuse to look? Do you cover your ears and refuse to hear? Paul's praying that we wouldn't do this. That by the working of the Spirit of God, he would touch our eyes and we would see what is really there, trusting that it is better than whatever you've made up in your minds. Proverbs 19.2 and Romans 10. It says that zeal without knowledge is not good. So you can be filled with all the right emotions and all the right desires to charge hard after God and his kingdom. But if you're running in the dark, if you're running with dimly lit, cloudy eyes, if your heart is ill-informed, you will end up missing the mark and falling in a pit. So Paul's desire is that our zeal would be joined with knowledge of God. That our zeal would be, would be joined with eyes that have truly beheld the glory of God. So he prays here, God, enlighten their eyes. Allow their hearts to rightly see, to behold you as you are, and to increase in that knowledge. Has this not been my prayer for you in my entire four years as your pastor? How often do I quote for you 2 Corinthians 4, 6, that the God who said, let light shine out of the darkness, has shown in your hearts to give you in your heart He has shown the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus, his son. That's my hope for us as a people. That week after week, that same light, the same power by which God caused stars to be, he would shine that light into your heart and it would be irresistible, undeniable, the glory of God seen in the face of his son, Jesus Christ. Recognizing that this isn't just how you come to salvation, this is how you endure to the end. This isn't just how you come to know Christ. This is how you grow in communion with him. And it's all the supernatural work of God. The powerful, supernatural work of God. Only God can do this. Only God can cause a blind man to see. And the scripture tells us that natural man is blind. That natural man, he hates the light and he loves the darkness. Therefore, God must give you a new heart. And God must enlighten the eyes of that very same heart. So we come into this place, and I'm not God. I can't do this work. I can pray like Paul, and I can ask it for you. I can pray like Paul, and I can ask it for myself. 
but I can't open your eyes like this. I can't shine the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ into your heart like this. But what I can do is I can continually bring the true thing, the real picture, before your faces. Week after week after week, I can take God as he has revealed himself in this word, and I can bring it before you. And I can pray with everything within me that God would do the work that only he can do. That as I seek to show you God as he has revealed himself in this word, that he would open your eyes, that he would enlighten your hearts, and that you would see. So that, verse 18, you might know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. Dear children, this is the Christian's greatest need because this is where hope is found. Do you see it now? Do you see why I push you so hard? You see why I plead with you not to pull up from the hard work of trying to see God as he really is. Not to settle for irrational and immature theology. Not to allow your heart to define who God is and who this word is allowed to say that he might be. But to have this word inform your heart. To have this word give knowledge to your heart. To say, God, you are who you are. You have revealed who you are in this word. That will be the definition of who you are, not my own dreams and hopes and imaginations. And that because of this, that as he comes to you, he grants you a spirit of wisdom and understanding as he enlightens the eyes of your heart. As you grow in the knowledge of God, it is there that you will find. It is there that you will know the hope to which he has called you. It is there that you will grow in the assurance that you are his and he will not stop short or abandon you. And it is there that you find the promise that his inexhaustible power is holy and completely for you. All of that bound up in seeing God as he is and knowing God as he has revealed himself. This is where hope is found, real hope, enduring hope, the hope to which he has called you out of darkness and into light, from death and to life, that he calls you no longer enemy but son, that he's called you out from under a curse and under a fount of endless spiritual blessings. All of this is found in knowing God, and the more you see of him, the more you know of him, the more you understand of him, the more this hope grows. The more this joy grows, the more rock solid your confidence grows. Do you understand? Yes, it can be scary at times. Listen to me. I have never found a single person in Scripture that saw God as he really is that was not terrified. To even lay eyes upon one singular holy angel is to fall down like a dead man. So what did you expect was going to happen when frail and sinful man actually saw God as he really is? Did you expect him to comfort you in your rebellion? Do you expect him to be safe? In the words of Mr. Beaver, Beaver from the land of Narnia, safe. Who said anything about safe? He is not safe, but he is good. He's the king, I tell you. What have you come to see? A safe God? A tidy God? A God that you could put in your pocket or hang upon a shelf? Christian, we come here every single Sunday morning. Could we put on a spiritual pep rally? Sure. Could I devote my time to preparing and presenting to you some motivational speech that's just sprinkled with Scripture? Sure. And yes, you would leave this place happy. You would leave this place comfortable 
and confident and content. And you would tell all your friends about what a nice church you have. You would tell all your friends about what a nice and friendly and funny and easygoing and relatable pastor you have. And absolutely none of that would amount to anything when real life punches you in the face. Do you understand? When you get that phone call that you've been praying your entire life you would never receive. When you're standing in the hospital room and you have no clue how you can go one further step. If you've not seen God as he really is. If you have not had the eyes of your heart enlightened to embrace God, the full counsel of who God is, then reciting to yourself over and over again, God is good all the time, all the time, God is good, that's probably not going to cut it. Because in that moment, God won't feel very good. Your heart will be screaming that he's anything but good. Your flesh will be telling you that you should run from him because he is not good. Well, I promise you he's good. He's infinitely good. He's the king, I tell you. But have you been fed nothing but cotton candy? Have you just been told how pretty and sweet you are? What a wonderful plan God has for you as you continue to walk in sin? If you've had the eyes of your heart enlightened by nothing but a weak and permissive picture of God, some grandfatherly figure that wants to do you good but is somehow limited in the ways he's going to get involved in your life, you'll find yourself with nothing to hold on to. If you've pulled away from the real and the heavy and, yes, even the scary things that this word says about God, you have nothing to ground you. You have no basis for assurance. You have nothing but magic beans and pixie dust and fortune cookie theology, and it will leave you high and dry. Spiritual platitudes don't cut it when you can't stop sobbing. You will not have the assurance that's found in a deep and mature and robust understanding of who God is and what he has actually done to purchase your redemption. How he can actually promise that he works all things for his glory and your good, and you can see that those two things are never in conflict. That his glory is your good. Even the parts of his glory that you didn't sign up for. And so my prayer for you, the reason we do these hard things today while, while the waters are reasonably calm for some of you, I know for some of you, you don't understand where my tone is coming from this morning. I know this is a heavy tone. I know there maybe even is some bite to my tone. And I, I pray to God that he could overcome my frailty and my weakness and my tone and my inability. And you could just hear the truth that he has for you in this word right now while the waters are calm. For many of you, the waters are reasonably calm in this moment. You're not in a season of mourning. You're not in a season of suffering. And so my hope is that you could hear these things today so that when your day comes, because dear children, your day will come. No one gets out of this place without scars. So that when your day comes, my prayer for you is that you will hold fast to real hope. Not the hope of subjective emotions, not hope driven by what we like to imagine God might be like, but hope found in the objective truth of God. All that he is, all that he has done, all that he has revealed to us in this word as we have wrestled with it in this room and in classrooms and homes 
and hospital rooms all throughout this faith family. So that then those in this faith family can, can come alongside you when you don't think you can take one more step, when you don't know how you can get up tomorrow, that those whom you have done real life with, those whom you have walked through real fire with, those whom have come out the backside of their day and can say that he's still there and he's still good, who have devoted their lives to following after this same God as he has really revealed himself, that they can come alongside you. Again, not with shallow platitudes, not with bumper sticker theology. They can come alongside you. They can look you in the eye and they can say, today we cry. Today we mourn. Today we yell at God if that's what it takes but steady. As quickly as possible, you must get your eyes back upon him because he's still there, he's not changed, he's not run away, and he's still in control. So you must fight to see him. Yes, it hurts. Yes, it's scary. And no life will never be the same. But if you can lift up your eyes just for a moment and get a glimpse of your father, then you'll remember You'll be reminded of who he is. You'll be reminded that none of this has caught him off guard. That none of this was just him looking ahead into the future and saying some really bad things are going to happen tomorrow. That he was already there and he had met you. And he had brought all the provision necessary with him. And that in that spirit right knowledge of who God is, you'll find your only basis for hope. So, beloved, we do this today. My tone reaches this place today. We do these hard things in this place today because that's the only basis for real hope tomorrow. You'll find the things that terrify you today are your grounding for hope and assurance and joy tomorrow. So, I know that that is a very odd and time-consuming way for me to introduce our third week here in Ephesians 1-7. But I just need you to know why this matters. Because we can become such intellectuals here as we wrestle and, and parse out every single word of Scripture and, 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 and we seek to know God. And, and, and I demand a lot of you. How many times have you heard me tell you this is not an easy church to belong to? We do hard things. But I need you to see that we don't just do the hard things because God is in heaven. He's saying, suck it up, you owe me. Because God is in heaven saying, do these hard things because therein lies your joy. And I want you to see this. I desperately want you to recognize that what the world is trying to sell you is fool's gold. Listen, light and flippant and cavalier and glib sermons, they go down easy today. But they leave you anemic and weak in the long run. So again, I tell you, the hard things we do in this, in this room today, they will prove, by the grace of God, they will prove to sustain your hope tomorrow. So, with whatever time we have left, let us look very quickly at verse 7, one more time. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. So again, I ask the question, what actually happened at the cross of Christ? Now, I would invite you, if you were not with us during my last two sermons, I would invite you to go back and either listen to those or to get a copy of the transcript. We put them on, on Church Center. But in short, we first explored the idea of redemption. 
Now, you'll remember that, those of you that were here, you'll remember that we came to a good biblical working definition that redemption is deliverance or freedom or release from bondage secured by the payment of a ransom. Specifically, we established that the whole of mankind was enslaved to sin, that our wills are in bondage to do that which belittles the glory of God and dishonors his name, and that in Christ Jesus, his purpose for coming was to set us free. We then considered together what the Apostle Paul meant when he said that the grounding and, and the root and the, the, the very first instance of this redemption, this being set free from sin, is to be forgiven of our trespasses. So we found that sin creates a debt. That when we sin, we have exchanged the glory of God for lesser things. We have robbed God of his rightful due, of his glory, and therefore we owe him a debt. Now, because God cannot condone, he cannot endorse, he cannot simply overlook such a thing, we must do something about this debt. A payment must be paid. God can't just write it off. He can't just overlook sin. He can't just forgive and forget. The necessary payment must be made. And so we spent our time together during our last gathering seeing how Christ Jesus has paid that debt. And on the cross of Christ Jesus, the wrath of God was satisfied. The righteous and just and infinitely holy fury of God for sin and sinners was placed upon his son without mercy. In the words of Romans 3.25, the redemption that is in Christ Jesus comes because he has put him forward as a propitiation by his blood. You recall that propitiation, it just means to satisfy or to appease the righteous wrath of God. That in his sacrificial death, Jesus Christ, he took God's wrath upon himself for the sins of his people. He drunk down the cup in full, so it was wholly and completely exhausted. There was nothing left. It was finished. So now I need to make one more point to you. One more point for you as we, as we look back and we consider that. We consider the exchange that has happened there. Our sin for his righteousness. We consider this, if we're not careful, we can see the crucifixion as little more than an interaction between the Father and the Son. We see the Father sending the Son. We see the Son coming. We see the Son willingly laying down his life for our sins and the Father willingly accepting that payment. Now, all of that is right and true. So I've tried to make clear to you, this is a message badly needed in the contemporary church. But, beloved, I think that Paul wants us to see in Christ Jesus' death something more than just a punishment. This is more than just penal this is more than just a satisfaction, that it's a substitution. Paul wants us to see that those saints that are there in Ephesus, those saints that are here in this room, those saints who have been chosen by God before the foundation of the world, he wants us to see that Christ Jesus didn't just die for sins in general, he died for your sins in your place. Again, I say that this was more than just a satisfaction, it was a substitution. Galatians 2.20, for I've been crucified with Christ. How's a man crucified with Christ 2,000 years ago? The same way that we were in the garden with Adam before that. That those who were in Adam, which is all mankind, we sinned when he sinned. Those who have been placed in Christ by the will of the Father, we were there and we died when he died. We've been crucified with Christ. It is no, lo lo no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me there have never been any more precious words in all the scriptures than these for me I can't tell you how much I love the little coffin we went to Annie's church last week 
or the church she's currently attending up there, and there was no babies in there, and it's shocking to have a room full of silence. I like the babbling, and I like the coughing. There are no more precious words in all the scripture than these for me. In this, the magnificent love of God is seen. Christ Jesus dying as our substitute, not just to uphold the cosmic justice of the world, not even to just uphold the name of God, but in love to pay your debt. The actual sins of actual saints placed upon the actual Savior at the cross. That's what happened. That the sin debt was paid for you. Your sins placed upon him, finished, removed from all eternity, never to be remembered, never to be brought up, never to be paid for again. Once a debt has been paid, it's gone. There's no more opportunity for anyone to bring it before you and to demand payment. That Christ Jesus died for you. Your sins upon him so that he died in your place. I believe that's what Paul wants us to see here. And the reason I land there is because of the fact that he uses the word blood. He could have said that in Christ we have redemption through his death. He could have even said through his crucifixion. But instead he speaks here of blood. Now whenever we see the word blood used in scripture, often yes, it just points to the fact that it was a violent death. Whenever we talk today about there was much bloodshed somewhere, that doesn't mean a bunch of people died in their beds. That means there was violence there, that that something happened. So yes, his pointing to the blood of Christ does point to the fact that it was a violent death. But it seems to me that at least in part what he's wanting us to do is to draw our mind back to the blood sacrifices of the Old Testament. Particularly, perhaps, thinking back to the ultimate show of the redemption for God's people in the Exodus, or the ultimate show before the coming of Christ Jesus, in the Exodus. You remember that God had said that he was going to come in judgment upon the land of Israel. He was going to require, by his own hand, he's going to take the life of the firstborn of all sinners in Israel, and I mean, excuse me, in, in Egypt, And they were all sinners, both Egyptians and Israelites alike. They were all sinners deserving of death and destruction and eternal separation. But to God's chosen people, to those whom Deuteronomy 7 tells us, he had placed his love upon them. Why? Because he placed his love upon them. Those whom he had unilaterally, sovereignly chosen to place his love upon, he provided and he revealed a way of escape that they were taking a spotless lamb that was without blemish, and they were to bring it into their home from the 10th day to the 14th day. This was an intimate thing. They were to care for the lamb. They were to watch the lamb. And then at midnight, the lamb was to be slain. And its blood was to be taken. It was to be put on the doorposts and on the lentils. Now, part of this was evidence that the, t- the life had been taken. Leviticus 17.11 makes clear that the life of flesh is in its blood. But it goes on to say, that I have given it to you, that is blood. I have given you blood to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by its life. That there's something about the blood of the sacrifice. There's something about the blood of the one who is offered that is meant to make atonement for the sins of man. Yes, it evidences the loss of life, but it evidences the sacrificial loss of life, the life that is given, not just for food, not just for celebration, but a life that is given with a, with a purpose, with a goal, with a hope of appeasing the, God, the, the wrath of God and making atonement for the sins of men. And so that that night, as the angel of the Lord passes through all of Egypt, executing God's righteous judgment, it was only those who would be covered by this blood who would be spared. So that there was mourning and weeping. It says there was not a home in Egypt in which there was not sobbing and mourning and weeping for the firstborn had lost their lives. That those who then were spared by the mercy of God, those who had been saved by the mercy of God, they could stand in that place and they could know, I am alive today because that lamb took my place. 
I am alive because he died. He didn't just die as a sacrifice. He died as my substitute. Don't you see? How precious then does that lamb become? How glorious is the sacrifice? How worthy is he who has given his life for us? Seems to me this is what the Apostle Paul is telling us. He's telling those precious saints in Ephesus. He's telling the saints here in this room that Christ Jesus didn't just die for sins. He didn't just die for justice. He died for you. Romans 5, 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare give his life. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for, for us. We who are ungodly and weak and frail and completely unrighteous, we who deserve nothing but God's eternal judgment and condemnation, God would have been perfectly justified and his glory would have been perfectly upheld if he had just condemned us to hell forever. But instead, desiring to show not only the glory of his wrath, but desiring to show the glory of his grace, Christ Jesus came, the most worthy and valuable Infinitely glorious being in all the universe. The Son of God came and he became man. Because a, a substitute, he has to be fitting, he has to be suitable and acceptable. And only God is worthy of paying the infinite price that was owed. But only man is a suitable sacrifice, a substitute for man. So the Son of God comes and he takes upon himself the fullness of humanity. He becomes the God-man. So that he can live and suffer and die and rise again for you. You weren't born yet. You didn't sign up. You didn't ask for it. God had planned it before the foundation of the world. Christ Jesus accomplished it 2,000 years before you were born. And if you had been left to yourself, you'd have been there among the mocking crowd demanding his death. But in love, supreme and unimaginable love, the Son of God came and he died for you. And if God would do this, if God would send his only begotten Son, and if that Son would come willingly, not under compulsion, not someone taking his life from him, but if he would come and willingly lay down his life, not just physically, but drink the very dregs of the cup of his father's wrath for you, what then would he possibly withhold? Where would he pull up short? Surely he will give you everything, absolutely everything necessary for your good and his glory. Surely you understand this, and now you understand why it matters that we grow in our knowledge of God. If you don't understand the depth and the depravity of your sin, if you don't understand the weight of glory, if you don't understand the wrath that you deserve, you'll never fully understand all that God paid to accomplish your redemption. You'll never understand the gulf that existed between you and him. And therein you'll be robbed of hope and assurance. And God would be robbed of glory. So my girls are old enough to understand the value of a dollar more or less. They understand how expensive things are. And so a couple of years ago, whenever we planned a trip to Disney World, they knew what that meant. They had some idea of, of what something like, like that costs. And just as a test, um, Lane and Peyton and PJ came into my office this morning looking for a sucker. And so I told them, congratulations, you just made it into a sermon. Tell me, how much do you think a trip to Disney World costs? And so for a point of reference, I told them a family meal at Iguana Joe's probably cost you 75 bucks. So what do you think it costs to go to Disney World? Lane's answer, $65. You can go to Iguana Joe's for cheaper than Disney World. That's n not that crazy nowadays. Peyton's answer was a little bit better. Peyton's answer was $99. 
have no clue what that trip cost them. But my girls, they had a little more understanding. They were a little more mature. They knew mom and dad paid thousands of dollars in love for us. This was a specific and a purposeful gift from my father to me because I was him and because he loved me. He took whatever, did whatever was necessary that we could take this trip. And they knew that we had paid for the trip in advance. Amanda's sister was planning our trip, and I said, I don't want to think about money while we're there, and so I want you to just give me a number. I'll, I'll give you the money, and I don't want to think about it. I don't want to ever have to tell my children no. So that then when we get there, knowing the cost that was given in order for us to make that trip, and knowing that the price had already been paid. Do you think there was ever a moment when my kids wanted a drink or a snack or a souvenir and they thought, yeah, but dad wouldn't give me that? I'd paid whatever was necessary that we could get there and we could do what was, do what was right, do what was fun, do what was good. You think I'm going to nickel and dime them over an ice cream cone? Do you see? But if he would not spare his beloved son, if the price has already been paid 2,000 years ago, what good thing would he withhold from you today? What thing that you need to make it to the end do you think he would withhold from you today? That if he who did not spare his only son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? All things. So in the middle of those scary moments, in the middle of those, hair, uh, th- th- those horrifying moments, when that phone call comes that you most desperately never wanted to receive, if you have this flippant image of God, some passive cosmic grandfather that wishes you well but really doesn't want to get that involved, do you see how that falls short? If you have beheld with the eyes of your heart this God who is truly and completely and inalterably Sovereign, who has given his only begotten son to purchase everything that was needed for your holiness and eternal life. Do you believe for one second he would withhold any good thing that you need to make it to the end? Father God, we praise you and we thank you. God, I thank you for this people. This isn't easy stuff. It's not. It hurts our heads and it stretches our hearts. It brings up memories and thoughts and things that oftentimes we'd rather not even consider. And yet, Father, you've built this people different. You've given them a desire for the deeper things. They will not settle for man-made pictures of who you are, but they seek to know you as you are. So God, as we seek to take that which we know to be true and express it back to you, to sing songs of praise, Father, we pray that you would receive them. These words would not just be the words of our lips, they would be the meditations of our heart. That you would receive the praise and the honor and the glory, that we would receive the hope and the joy and the blessing. Father, we love you. We trust you and we thank you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.